Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. This is part three, my discussion with Thomas Frank about his book, The People Know. So Thomas, uh, talk more about the mindset and how, and sort of the origins of this, at least modern origins of this mindset within the elite of the Democratic Party and and amongst the elites of the oligarchy, much much of it actually on Wall Street, who who kind of position themselves as being the anti-right, but really hate the left popular movement. There's this fascinating moment, Paul, where the word itself, populism, uh, gets flipped. And it goes from being a positive thing, you know, the sort of left-wing worker, farmer worker movement in the 1890s. It goes from that to being a very negative thing, to being, um, you know, something fearful and dreadful, uh, you know, the um, – uh, something something that's that's paranoid and uh, suspicious and uh, uh, you know pathological uh, and anti-Semitic and that moment when that happens is in the 1950s it's a really fascinating uh, place where the writing of history intersects with well with with history itself with the making of history and it uh, the, the, the man who is probably single-handedly res- most responsible for this is Richard Hofstadter, who is the, great, the greatest American historian of his day, probably of the 20th century. And uh, an, an aside here, I was a – I got a PhD in American history. That's what I had meant to do with my life uh, when I was young. And uh, I was a big admirer of Hofstadter when I was younger. He, he was uh, – he's an elegant writer and an elegant thinker. You know, he brings together these two – this sort of two great functions of a historian. And I, 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 he's, he, I thought he was absolutely wonderful. I really looked up to him when I was younger. But now I'm an adult. And I look back at his masterpiece, which is a book that came out in 1955 called The Age of Reform. And it's – you can I can now as an adult see very clearly what this book is. It was meant as a history of different reform movements uh, in American life and you know, talking about which ones succeeded and which ones failed. Uh, and it was a vicious attack on – on populism, on the populist movement of the 1890s. But now as an adult, I can see that it was something else at the same time. It was a manifesto for, it was a manifesto for Hofstadter's generation. Okay. So it was just two things at the same time. And let's begin by saying this is the book that really turned the tables on populism and made it into a, uh, a, 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 a negative term, a term that you applied to authoritarians and to people like Donald Trump. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he went back and looked at the Hofstadter went back and looked at the original populist movement and said it was, you know, it was pathological. It was an expression of status anxiety. Farmers were people who were on their way down, and because they were on their way down, they, uh, you know, they imagined all these uh, all these scapegoats for their problems, uh, and. Um, you know they were uh, they were cranks. Uh, they rejected expertise. They were anti-intellectual, and above all, they were anti-Semitic. And he actually tried to blame uh, anti-Semitism in America, uh, all of it basically, on populism, which is ridiculous, which is utterly fatuous. But he said that. And this book was uh, massively influential. It was a big bestseller. Uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It has been described as the most. Uh, influential work of American history ever published. 
And Hofstadter's larger idea, like I said, it was a manifesto for his generation and his so, his sociological cohort. What I mean by that is he said there's two models for reform. Okay, One of them is the populist model, a mass movement of working class people. Uh, and that's how you get reform, by, by bringing together uh, people at the bottom. And he said that doesn't work. We can see that doesn't work because populism was this, you know, pathological movement that was delusional. Uh, all these, you know, it was sort of hypnotized demagogues, anti-Semitism, scapegoating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of which turned out to be wrong. But he said there's another way to do reform, and that other way is to bring uh, highly educated people together. And put them in charge of all the different sort of uh, uh, organs uh, that, that go to make up government and society and business and the military. And they will all get together and sit around a big mahogany table in Washington, D.C. and come to agreement with one another. And that's how you get things done. And he said this at the very moment, of course, this is how things work, in, uh, as we know, in the world of ideas, as that was, in fact, what was happening. That his generation of intellectuals was coming out of the Ivy League schools, the sort of top uh, flight schools, and were taking over the corporations. You know, up until then, corporations had been run by people who inherited them or people who built them, entrepreneurs, that sort of thing. But now they were going to be run by people with MBAs, people with economics degrees. Um, People with advanced degrees were running the big departments of the government. People with advanced degrees were running the Pentagon. And uh, Hofstadter and his friends, like if you, you, know, you think of the other intellectuals of the time, such as Daniel Bell, that's what they were celebrating. Remember, Daniel Bell had a famous book called The End of Ideology. You didn't need ideology anymore. You didn't need mass movements. You didn't need millions of people in the streets like you had in the 1890s and the 1930s. You needed people like Daniel Bell. You know, sitting around a big table and making decisions on your behalf. That was the model in the 1950s. And Hofstadter's great book, Attacking Populism, by great, I mean spectacularly influential book, Attacking Populism, was a manifesto for that way of understanding the world. You know, the organization man, the man in the gray flannel suit. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, so this book is hugely influential. All sorts of other intellectuals at the time start copying it. They start writing about populism, and the word takes on this life of its own. Uh, this It becomes a stereotype. Now, here's what Hofstadter never admitted uh, in his book. His stereotype comes directly from the democracy scare of 1896. Remember, we talked about that in the last episode, all of the elites in American society getting together and denouncing William Jennings Bryan. Hofstetter just basically took that picture that they assembled and, uh, and said, yeah, that's, that's what populism really was. You know, it really was a bunch of like crazy farmers who really had no idea what they were doing and were rejecting, you know, a, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the consensus uh, 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 expertise of their day. And then they look at the, the, the rise of Hitler and the Nazi dictatorship. Right, right. It said that's the same thing. That's the same thing. So, although, although the truth is Hitler is given birth to mostly by the German elites. Uh, of course. So this, uh, this is – and the, the, what happened was uh, uh, that Hofstadter was within five years after this book came out, this sort of triumphant manifesto for his generation. Um, the book is – his attack on populism is completely crushingly refuted 
by the American history profession. Uh, all of these people who are actual scholars of populism, you know, who dig in the archives and, and you know, and read the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, congressional quarter. What, what is it called? The, you know, when the, when the speeches in the House of, Con- of Congress, you know, I'm sorry, people who have done the granular, the real research on populism and know, know what it actually was. These people come back at Hofstadter and within a, vi- within a very short amount of time have completely refuted uh, his uh, understanding of, of populism. So like the idea that populism was the, the fount of anti-Semitism in America is utterly disproven. I mean, that's completely wrong. As, as I learned myself in, in my own research, Paul, um, anti-Semitism is all over the place in American life, especially among the people who hated populism. They were deeply, profoundly anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant and racist, anti-black. Um, and he's, you know, he's got the picture completely backwards in all sorts of ways. And this is proven. OK, it's we learned this when I studied, uh, you know, when I when I when I when I uh, was a graduate student in American history. It's sort of, sort of one of these classic tales of, of someone with a daring, you know, he come Hofstadter comes forward with this thesis and the thesis is crushingly disproven. OK, nobody knows that this thesis was completely destroyed. And yet this stereotype that Hofstadter embraced, that he took from the 1890s and from the 1930s and then sort of grounded in the social science of the 1950s, that stereotype takes off. And his redefinition of the word populism takes off. And in fact, that is how we get this modern discipline that I referred to in an earlier episode, the discipline called uh, uh, global populism studies. It takes its its baseline definition of what populism is from Richard Hofstadter, who's describing, you know, who's getting the American populist movement completely wrong, who's using the establishment attack on populism as a definition of what populism is. This is what I'm saying, Paul, long story short. This whole redefinition of populism that we see around us every day is a pedagogy that is based on a mistake, a famous historical mistake made in the 1950s. This whole pedagogy that has like departments, big name academics, they get tenure, they publish books, they write articles, they have conferences, TED Talks, all of that is based on a famous mistake. Or rationalized with a famous mistake. No, it's based on it. It's the, the Hofstadter. They build on Hofstadter. They, they now they don't they don't often refer to him anymore. But that's where this this whole idea of populism as uh, you know a nicer name for right wing authoritarianism. That's where it comes from. It comes from him, and he was you know completely in error <laughs> about the populist movement. Anyhow, it's but what's funny. Paul, as as with so many of these questions, the facts don't really matter. It's the picture that Hofstadter painted. The stereotype is what really uh, captured people's imagination. So you've got this emerging class. You know, he's right about that. He and Daniel Bell and the rest of them, they're right about that. There is this group coming up that is taking charge of the Pentagon, that's taking charge of the Fortune 500, that's taking charge of the, uh, uh, you know, of the branches of the government and the big law firms in New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That there is this new cohort that's running things. And this cohort needs a word to describe who they are not, to describe what they are displacing, to describe their enemy. And that word is populism. That's the word they settle upon. You write, 
It's the current liberal ideal of Washington, D.C. It's the philosophy of mainstream American journalism. It's the strategic model for the cautious, scholarly, consensus-minded Clinton and Obama administrations extending their hands in friendship to fellow elites in Wall Street and Silicon Valley. This is where it all begins. Talk about this kind of modern version of, of this anti-populism. Yeah, it's in some ways what we're living with now is it is very similar to 1896 and to 1936, except for that the political valence of it is 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 flipped. And what I mean by that is you see this great coming together of uh, this great consensus of the elites. That's happening all over again. Um, the the newspapers in this country, such as they are, there's basically two of them anymore, the Post and the Times, and they agree on everything. Uh, you know, the Post every day you open it up and it's the, it's the same thing. Five anti-Trump uh, editorials every day, uh, often denouncing populism. They do it constantly. Uh, New York Times, same thing. There's this consensus among uh, economists. They're always doing these, you know, mass signing of letters. You know, 400 economists say that NAFTA is the greatest thing in the world, or you know, whatever the hell it is. Uh, we've talked about you and I have talked about this before. Um, the consensus of the elites, the grand, um, uh, what's that word from European history that? Uh, you know, when they all came together against Napoleon, what was that called? The Concert of Europe. It's like that. It's the grand concert of, of elites, only in a, with in tones of utter hysteria. And that's where they aren't where we are now. Now, I'm not saying that um, Donald Trump is a real populist. I can't stand Donald Trump. I, I think he's a, you know, a, a, a demagogue and uh, has, has, you know, done incredible damage to this country and to the lives of millions of people. But the uh, the hysteria and the, the way that the sort of liberal elite of this country has reacted uh, in the last four years is exactly analogous to the way uh, conservative elites reacted against Bryan in 1896 and the way conservative elites reacted against Roosevelt in 1936. These are you know, elites that, that were either threatened or could see, feel themselves being displaced. And they used, uh, at least in one of those cases, the word populist to describe the people who had displaced them. Your, your fundamental argument, if I get it from the early in the book, is you actually cannot fight this kind of right-wing uh, movement uh, that backs Trump. If you don't really get what the history of progressive populism is, but you also, uh, as you write, the, the, the absolute fear, even hatred of working class mass movements, especially of the left, actually – or of the right, but especially of the left, uh, that this this elite that controls the Democratic Party is going to keep reproducing the conditions for the rise of a Trump. Yes, because they deny that it's yeah, – do you remember, Paul, it was, it was I think when you and I first met, I had written an article for The Guardian saying – you know, this is early, early in the days of the of the democracy scare of 2016, when you know people were hysterical that Donald Trump was was the was going to be the Republican nominee. And I said, uh, I said, you know, you look at his speeches. Yeah, the guy is a bigot, no question about that. And yeah, a lot of his supporters are racist, no question about that. 
But he's also saying these other things. You know, he is reaching out to people on other grounds that are legitimate or sound legitimate. Trump is always full of shit. You know this. He's always wrong. Even when he's talking about something, even when he's like superficially correct, <laughs> his deeper understanding always turns out to be based on something that's completely wrong. You know this, right? But I, but I said, you know, his criticism of the trade agreements, for example, he's right about that. That, that was a legitimate legitimate complaint. And the Democrats blow this off at their peril. And, you know, like he was talking, he was, you know, give him credit. The guy was saying these endless, he was criticizing these endless wars. Well, it's about goddamn time somebody criticized these endless wars. Um, He was criticizing Wall Street all the time, you know, for bullshit reasons. He doesn't really understand what happened in the, in the, in the financial crisis, but he was, he at least made a big show of criticizing these people. And then again, remember, he's done very, very little about it, but he harnessed that anger. Uh, just as the Tea Party did before him, which is also a, a bullshit movement, if you ask me. But the the right does this again and again and again. They harness legitimate public anger and bend it to their own, like uh, like Citizen Kane. Be- or, well, he failed, but they try to bend it to their own, uh, 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 you know, to, to their own purposes. And Trump has succeeded in doing this. But if you just blow it off. Now, here's the thing. Uh, if you just blow it off and ignore it, as, as so many of the Democrats were doing back in 2016, you're going to remain completely clueless how to stop these uh, these, you know, the, these right wing, these, these sort of backlash uh, uh, flashes that happen again and again and again in American life. The key idea here, and this is what, you know, I'm reading all of these bo- these anti-populist books and articles that have come out in the last couple of years, and there's this huge outpouring of them, all of them using the word populist to mean uh, race authoritarian demagogue okay and I'm reading these books and one of the things they're most upset about is that say they say populists are anti-expert and populists represent you know populism represents the the, the the overthrow of legitimate expertise by people who don't know what they're doing and I keep waiting every time I read one of these I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop it's like yeah but the experts screwed up you know, the, what about Vietnam? You know, what about the Iraq war? What about, you know, go down the list? What about the financial crisis? What about the bailouts? You know, what about COVID-19? Oh, yeah. Or, or what about my favorite example, the Hillary Clinton campaign, you know, run by the greatest experts in the business. You know, these people are there's just elite failure after elite failure after elite failure. And so I'm reading these books who are deploring the rise of, of, of people who criticize elites. And I'm like, well, when are you going to deal with the fact that elites keep failing? Where's your where's your theory of that? I want to hear your theory of that. They never have one. They never talk about it. It's as though this is impossible. It's like it's like ruled out by definition. Elites do not fail. These elites, particularly these liberal elites, because they take zero responsibility for the rise of Trump and the election of Trump. Right. But the fact that you had the greatest inequality gap in the history of the United States under the Obama Biden administration, I mean, duh, that has no relationship to why there's a Trump. Absolutely. Absolutely cannot be acknowledged. Absolutely cannot be acknowledged. And and even if you even if you make them do it, they'll you know they they'll find some way. It's like not really our fault. There was some legislation from you know that Bush did, and we you know we were dealt a bad hand, et cetera, et cetera. Obama's heart was in the right place, and maybe it was, maybe it was. But uh, I mean, come on, the whole like I spent uh, four or five years writing about nothing else but elite failure, and for them to just you know uh, pretend as though none of that happened. 
is just absolutely extraordinary. And so it's it's you know there it's funny because what we're talking about here, Paul, is largely an academic literature. These are supposed to be people who are, you know, peer reviewed. This is supposed to be scholarly excellence in action. And it's like it's like anybody can refute this stuff, <laughs> you know, and it, not to mention the fact what I said earlier, it's all goes back to Hofstadter is based on a famous mistake. It's it's a. Uh, it's there's something really um, disturbing and disheartening about all of this. It's as though, well, it's not as though it is. We're living in the middle of this debate where it's it's between two false ideas. You know that, that you've got one, you know, an elite that is screwed up many times over and is saying that the only opposition, the only possible opposition to us is is racist assholes. You know, bigots with 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 guns driving around in pickup trucks. That's the only possible alternative to us. And then you've got, and then you've got, you know, Trump, who is, you know, this deceiver, this demagogue. Uh, one of the best examples of what you're talking about is how Obama turned all the Treasury Department, the all his economic policy, to the expertise of Wall Street, because only they could understand the complexity of global finance. Yeah. Only they would know how to get dig out of the uh, the hole of 08. And of course, they did in a way that it totally enriched themselves and created the conditions for a Trump. Well, to just everything that we've said in this in this episode, in the last 20 minutes, Paul, you can summarize it in and, – and, and I hope your listeners have watched the other interviews that you and I have done because you and I have talked about this subject many, 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 many times. And I keep coming back to the same theme, which is that – Experts tell us, you know, the, the sort of uh, uh, people who call themselves experts, the, the, the professional class, let's put it that way, people with advanced degrees who basically make the world that you and I live in. They, you know, they are the ones who, who uh, uh, you know, who, who make our laws, who design our buildings, uh, you know, who set up our corporations of the people that Richard Hofstadter thought he was writing a manifesto for. Um this class of people presents themselves to us as neutral, disinterested experts. They will make the right decision on our behalf. And what I have said again and again and again is that like any other social cohort, these people will act in their own self-interest and they will help each other out and they will help themselves when the chips are down. And you saw that in the in the financial crisis, you know, in, in the most extraordinary way where one set of elites bailed out another set of elites and there was zero accountability. You know, there was zero accountability for these people who had crashed the global economy. Um, you know, none of them got canceled, right? <laughs> They're all still there. They still have their goddamn jobs. It's the most amazing thing. And there's talk that Biden's going to bring them back in to run the Treasury Department. And and but you go back to uh, to Hofstadter and company, and and he was writing a manifesto for a social class. Okay, so this is again and again and again is my message is that is that these people act as a class, think as a class, and they're I mean they're doing they're manifestly doing it in a way that is so patently obvious right now. Anyhow. That's my that's my joyous message unto the world. Well, just just before we we conclude, um, I am so negative, Paul. I just I want to I want to conclude on a hopeful note. What are we going to say? Well, what do you make of this kind of new progressives that are getting elected? Of course, AOC is sort of the most prominent face, the Sanders campaign. But there's been progressives running all over the place. Many in like I know in New York, quite a few are actually winning and overturning some of these uh, anti 
populist Democrats are losing seats. Um, there, there is a motion here. And I'm wondering, what do you make of this pandemic moment where both the sort of shift in popular opinion to do with Black Lives Matter, uh, the fact that Biden's up 15 points, I'm no fan of Biden, but the but American people get that this maniac Trump has to go. Um, it may well, he's, it's been catastrophe, his handling of the of the epidemic. I mean, in the, unemployment is what, 15 percent? You don't get reelected when you deliver results like that. You know, no one does. So what do you make of, the, of what uh, is this left of the Democratic Party and also the left not in the Democratic Party? Oh, I'm very I'm very excited about it. I, I, I think it's a, you know, a hopeful sign. And uh, I'm also very excited about Black Lives Matter because you think about that name, you think about what they're about. And it's the sort of the ultimate. Uh, it's a fantastically populist slogan, you know, about uh, it, it, and. But the thing is that they have to turn this corner. They are, uh, you know, their 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 main issue is, of course, uh, police brutality. But when this movement, if this movement, uh, you know, starts taking on economic inequality as well, and starts taking on capitalism. Starts going after you know uh, modern you know this financial system this this economic system that we live under. If they if and when they start taking that on, you're that's that's a genuine populist movement, and all of a sudden you've got you know you've got a real uh, force to reckon with out in the streets. And I hope that happens. Now we haven't seen it yet, Paul. What's going on right now is kind of the opposite. You've got sort of woke capital uh, reaching out and trying to take advantage of this moment. You know, all of these corporations trying to cloak themselves in the righteousness of Black Lives Matter, uh, but. This could go the other way in a hurry, and I hope it does. I think it would be absolutely wonderful to see. Uh, Bernie Sanders, by the way, you know, we haven't really talked about him. Uh, he represents uh, the populist tradition, I think, uh, very clearly. And, uh, you know, I've met Bernie Sanders, and I think uniquely among American politicians that I've met, has a historical sense of how you of, of of the importance the significance of mass movements and also of how you build a mass movement. I don't not many politicians like a lot of Democrats don't give a damn about mass movements. They just want people to go out and vote for them. And it, you know if they have a movement or don't have a movement, they, they don't really care. But Sanders understands that if you want to make change, it's not just about the leader. You've got to have a force. Uh, you've got to have a mass movement. Uh, in the streets. I mean, that's how the 30s happened. That's how the 1890s. That's how that's how the 1960s happened. That's how change really happens. And Sanders knows that he understands that. Now, unfortunately, he was beaten and uh, his efforts to build a movement have been, you know, well, they're, uh, it's a work in progress. Let's put it that way. I hope it I hope it works. But Anyhow, you know, we're in such a crazy time. Never has the need for universal health care been so obvious in this country. And yet we just nominated uh, Joe Biden, who has sworn to veto universal health care if it, if it crosses his desk. Now, I don't want to be too negative about Biden. Uh, you know, Sanders really likes him. Did you know this? Yeah, it's interesting. I, he, I take him at his word that he think Biden, thinks Biden is kind of a genuine character. Larry, Larry Wilkerson knows Biden and worked with them on the uh, Iran nuclear deal. And he says, but Biden kind of will go where the political winds 
take him, um, but he's not a bad guy. So that all goes back to the point. Oh, everybody in D.C., D.C., they, they all love him. You know, everybody's met him and they all love him. Yeah. It goes back to the point you made, which is if this mass movement takes on the broader vision of of like the Green New Deal kind of vision, some variation of that. Yeah. That really demands a shift in power. And it, uh, me, I think that means a shift in how things are owned. Of course. Yeah. Too. I, you can't without a... For example, public banking on a large scale, you can't weaken Wall Street and so on. But if that movement doesn't take that shape, and I say, you know, if we don't all try to make it so, uh, as uh, humans are doomed, the, the, as, as grandiose, uh, I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't use that word, but Biden's climate plan is, even what he's proposing is never going to happen. If that, if the mass movement that's in motion now doesn't get much bigger and put on even more pressure once Biden's elected, not less, uh, our future is not going to be very bright here. But, but I think it's very possible that it will. I certainly hope so. Uh, so I want I wanted to end on a happy note and it, it's not, I'm not really, I don't know if I've got it in me anymore, but let me just put it this way. Populism, you know, when I I look back at the different populist movements in American history and the, the populist tradition in American life, and um, it's a very optimistic tradition, you know, to, to, to do what these people did and keep trying against all odds and to try to build them. Oh, my God, the stuff these people did is it, it requires a faith in humanity that is very rare nowadays. And that is, it's really hard for me even to summon up nowadays, but I certainly hope that, I mean, I, I, uh, I want to be an optimist, Paul, you know me, you've had me on your, your show many times. I'm, I'm, I'm always a negative guy, always the most cynical, always the most cynical guy in the room, you know, but I, I, the populist side of me wants to believe in, in, uh, in the American people. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thank you for having me, Mr. Paul J. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.